If, you, uh, if you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Galatians. You can see that on the big screen above my bald head. We are in Galatians chapter 2, at the end of Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, and uh, you will find our reading today on page 973. If you're new to the Bible... Um, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the little ones. We're going to begin starting in verse 17, Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. So you'll find that middle of the way down through uh, the left-hand column. Just look for the 1-7. That's where we'll start. Here's what we're going to do. Um, here at Cornerstone, we generally work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, and we're just going to keep on going through the book of Galatians. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 17 to 21 this morning. So I will read the passage, and then uh, we'll, we'll pray. We'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together. I know we've prayed a lot already in the service, but we're a praying church. We believe God hears us, so we're going to keep on praying as long as He hears us. And so uh, we're going to pray, ask for the Lord's help on our time together. And then uh, after that, I'll break the passage down into three different parts uh, and do my best by God's grace to explain its meaning and how it relates to us here today. So, in total, it should be around 30 minutes or so, and then after that, we'll have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together. So, Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You that you have disclosed yourself to us in this perfect word. That we are not left to wonder what you are like, what you think, and how you feel. But you have spoken that to us in the pages of the Holy Bible. Give us that word here this morning the riches of this word, to encourage those here who are discouraged, 
to rebuke those here who are proud and to show us all the vast dimensions of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before the sun sets on the international date line in the middle of the Pacific Ocean tonight, over two and a half billion people speaking several thousand distinct languages will have done the very same thing that we are doing here this morning, gathering in churches, opening their Bibles, and celebrating the life, and the death, and the resurrection of a Jewish man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And some of those people will gather this morning under the threat of violence. Places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Nigeria and North Korea. Many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord will meet in secret. The majority of Christians who will have worshipped today will rise early in the morning and travel by foot long distances on their way to their respective church buildings. Christians across the world and across cultures have staked everything on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We have sung about it several times today. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important? Well, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's answer to the most troubling problem for humanity. I wish I could tell you the most troubling problem for humanity was climate change or gun violence or racial injustice. Those are big, big problems to be sure, but they are easily fixed in comparison to our biggest problem. The Bible tells us what our biggest problem is by asking a question and then answering it. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Put another way, who goes to heaven? Who has eternal life? Answer, he or she who has never done wrong, whose motives are always pure, whose worship is always perfect, and who has never lied. Can you see why this is the most troubling problem for humanity? We've been working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter that he wrote to some churches in a region of the Middle East that used to be called Galatia. 
Today, it's in modern-day Turkey. And in this letter, Paul has been correcting bad teaching about how imperfect people like us can be made right before a perfect God and therefore go to heaven and stand in His holy presence. We've learned a few things so far. First, we've learned that there were some people in Paul's day in the churches in Galatia who were teaching that in order to be right with God, you needed to be a good person. It sounds right. God is a good God. So you needed to keep God's good rules. Paul comes along to say, well, that's not right. God's rules are good. God Himself is good, but God's rules don't make people good. And the reason is because no one can keep God's rules. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord who will stand in His presence? Only those who keep all the rules. So Paul says, I I, I tried that. I did it better than anyone. And I was still not right with God. And Jesus still needed to save me. In this letter, Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the life-changing news that rule-keeping doesn't make anyone right with God, that the only way to be made right with God is to trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it's true. The only person who can stand before a holy God is the one whose hands are clean and heart pure and worship perfect and who's never told a lie. And it's also true that no one, not in this room or any room, has lived that way. No one except Jesus Christ. God the Son, God from God, as the creed put it earlier, came down from heaven, was made human, and He alone lived a perfect life had perfect worship, and spoke perfect words. He alone earned heaven, and He was crucified on a sinner's cross and buried and rose again on the third day. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, any and all who turn to Him in faith are united to Him. And so then God treats them as if they had lived the way Jesus had lived. The Bible's word for this that we have seen in the book of Galatians is a big word called justification. It's God's declaration that hell-deserving sinners like us, whose hands are not clean, whose heart is not pure, whose worship is all wrong, whose mouth tells lies, Those people, by taking hold of God's own Son, are declared righteous by God's decree. Right before God. We've learned so far that they did nothing to deserve that. All justification comes by God's kindness and grace. And this is a rather controversial idea when you tease it out. Justification is the doctrine 
that God declares a man sober even before he enters rehab. This is the life-altering good news, the gospel, that lit a fire in Galatia. Because people got nervous. No way. Paul, you're taking grace too far by saying that God will justify me without me keeping any of his rules. If rule keeping is not the basis of right standing with God, why will anyone keep them? You're just promoting sin, Paul. Giving people a license to just do whatever they want with impunity. Can I, can I just add? If after hearing the gospel... If you have not had the same thought, if you have not become nervous about the same thing, I have to wonder whether you've actually been listening. If you've never been nervous that God's grace is so free that it's too good to be true, I wonder if you've been listening. If you've never thought, well, some people are just going to take this as a blank check to just do whatever they want, maybe you need to relook at the gospel again. This is the objection Paul is confronting here in Galatia. It's a rather natural objection. Does grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, produce a people that care nothing about holiness? Or purity. Because logically, it seems like it would. And this is Paul's answer in part. Five verses. And here, here's my summary of these five verses as best as I can give to you. In sin you died. In Christ you live. Therefore, live for Christ by faith. In sin you died, and in Christ you live. Therefore, live for Christ by faith. Three points, as I said this earlier. The first point is you died in your sin. This we see from verses 17 to 18 and 19. Let's read these three verses again. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The logic of these verses is a bit tough to follow. I'll break it down. Hopefully that will help. Verse 17 is a rhetorical question. If we truly believe that God declares us righteous on the basis of nothing that we've done, good or bad, but solely on the basis of everything that Jesus has done, well then, won't people just go on sinning and God's grace, Jesus Himself, then become the promoter of more sin? 
If we truly believe that a person cannot be made right with God by keeping God's own law, well, then no one will keep God's law and the whole world will descend into chaos. Or to put it a different way, if when I sin, grace is there to meet me, and if the song that we just sang a few minutes ago, my sin is great, His mercy is more, if that's true, the more I sin, there's more grace, then isn't my sin to blame? Isn't more grace because of more sin? Won't I just keep going on sinning? And Paul's answer here, as elsewhere, is certainly not. Christ is not a servant of sin. He is the solution to sin. Listen to verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You see, Galatians, the problem is not with God. The problem is not with the gospel. And the problem is certainly not with grace. The problem is with me. I can't be made right by keeping God's rules because I can't keep God's rules. And if I try, I'm just rebuilding what Jesus tore down by His body on the tree. The problem is not with Him. The problem is with me. See, here's what we have to understand. The religious person trying to keep all the rules and the non-religious person they're, mo- they're both making the same mistake. Both of them are trying to be good on their own. Religious people and non-religious people are doing the same. They're just using different words. It's the same highway, just two different lanes. Religious people are trying to be right with God by keeping God's rules. And so rule-keeping becomes the measure of their rightness. Non-religious people do the exact same thing, except instead of God's rules, they make their own. Be kind. Be tolerant. Pay your taxes. Recycle. Watch your carbon emissions. March with the marginalized. You see, it's not that they don't have a Bible. It's just that they have a Bible of their own making. It's the same highway, just a different lane. Both are trusting in themselves to be good. Both are misunderstanding God and grace and the gospel. Trying to be good on your own won't work. After all, what is good? Like, who defines good. My non-Christian friend, I'm so glad you're here. Have you thought this through? Standards of good are different decade to decade, even culture to culture in the same decade. What's good to a 21st century Westerner would be considered bad by people in other cultures, even Western people of a different generation 
what's considered good to some South American cultures could not be considered good to us. So what is good then? And with so much on the line, shouldn't we know? There has to be some standard. Can't just make up definitions of what is good based on what seems right at the time. When you hop into an airplane, you don't want the pilot to just determine that he or she is fit to fly based on their own standards, what seemed right at the time. We don't, we don't do that with anything important. Yet why would we do that with that which is most important? There must be a standard of good, of righteous and unrighteous. And whatever that standard is, we can disagree about what standard that is, but we must agree that it can't come from inside. It must come from outside. It must come from above. The religious person cannot say they're good by their own merits, and nor can the non-religious person. A declaration of good comes from outside of us, comes from above us. Any attempt to be good some other way is folly. And the Bible says it leads to death, not life. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Look at verse 19. For through the law, trying to be good by the law, I died to the law. God's law, His commandments showed me I could never make myself acceptable to God. God's too big. God's too holy. God's too perfect. It's like shooting a spitball into the sun. We have unclean hands, impure hearts, and therefore we cannot stand before a holy God. And the Bible teaches that the sentence against us for breaking God's commandments is eternal death. And once you've understood this, once you've understood your weakness, your inability to be good, You're getting really close to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's your messiness, it's your ugliness, it's your neediness that moves God toward you. It's your poverty which reveals His riches to be so wonderful. As one preacher said it, we're all on welfare in God's economy. Part one is, in sin you died. So where does that leave us? It leaves us dead. It leaves us in trouble. It leaves us not right with God and no hope for eternal life. And that brings us to part two, that in Christ, the dead are raised. This is what we read in the first part of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now we're getting close to understanding why Resurrection Sunday is so important to Christians. Because Jesus Christ wasn't the only one nailed to the sinner's cross on Good Friday. Paul says, I was nailed there too. Christian, you were nailed there too. You have been crucified with Christ. So listen to the law as it accuses you and finds you a sinner from verse 17 to 19. You are a sinner. You are a liar. You are a thief. You are an adulterer. You are a cheat. You are a hypocrite. You've broken all the commandments and agree with every single word. Yes, I was, but I died. Jesus was not the only one nailed to the cross. My life of sin was nailed there too. And the sentence of death over your life has been served. You died when Christ died. Your sin-riddled, disease-stricken body has been laid in the tomb with Him. But that is not the end of your story. On the third day, the stone rolled back and God the Son stepped forth from the dead. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. Our Savior walks on resurrected feet. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. And that means, so are you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now do you see why the resurrection is so important? If Jesus is still dead, so are we. But if Jesus is alive, dear Christian, so are you. Faith has united you to Christ closer than a husband to a wife, closer than your mind is to your body. You have been cemented to Jesus Christ, and how God feels about His Son is how God feels about you. What is true of the risen Lord has been made true of you by God's eternal decree. And every day your life is one day closer to unending glory in His presence. The Father has received His Son's death and life. Jesus has been found perfect, sinless, acceptable to God. And God has decreed over His Son, clean hands, pure heart, perfect worship, perfect words. And you, having been united to Christ by faith, have received the same declaration from your Father's mouth. Non-Christian, I'm glad you came to church on Easter. Here's the thing that you've been looking for your whole life. This is the thing. This is the reason why you've not been able to be satisfied. Why you're so unsettled. 
This is why the love of your parents was never enough. This is, this is why the love of a lover has never been enough. You need to be accepted, not just by your parents, not just by someone of the opposite sex. You need to be accepted by your Creator. And here's how that happens. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth, He is the Lord. And God, in the most miraculous power you'll ever experience, will unite you to His Son and declare over your life, justified, perfect, good. Pray that you don't leave here today without making that confession to your Creator. After the service is over here today, find someone who looks like a regular and ask them about that. These are my friends. I know that they'd be delighted to help you be right with God. If you can't find someone, I'll be in the foyer after the service is over. I'd love to talk to you about that. The law declares us guilty and faith in Christ sets us free. You died in sin. You were raised in Christ. So you might be wondering what that means for us today. What do we do with this information? Well, that brings us to our final point. This is where we'll end our time together. We live for Christ by faith. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 20. In the life... I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, and Christ died for no purpose. In sin you died, in Christ you live, therefore live for Christ by faith. Remember, Paul is answering an objection to the gospel that justification by faith alone will produce a people unconcerned with holiness and purity. But the reality is that if someone professes Christ and keeps on in the same lifestyle they lived before Christ, making no effort to change or to trust Him or to honor Him, well, this just proves that they have never actually understood the gospel. It proves that they weren't actually interested in God at all. They were just looking for an excuse to live however they wanted without the threat of punishment. And Jesus was no more to them than an insurance policy. And the problem is not with the gospel, of course. The problem is that they've never believed the gospel. Because those who truly believe the gospel are the ones who are most concerned about holiness and purity. They know what God has done for them. They know what Paul says in verse 20, He loved me. He gave His life for me. Jesus is their joy. Jesus is their satisfaction. Jesus is their contentment. So those who have been truly affected by the truth of the gospel will go to war with anything in their life that would distract them or pull them away from that joy and contentment and delight in Jesus. 
Last Sunday, we saw that since God has saved us by His grace, that we are fully His, because He saved us not by anything in us, but everything in Jesus. It was His free choice to save us. And because of that, we wholly belong to Him. There's nothing that God cannot ask of us. Well, here we see that we must take that even further. And we see that there is nothing that God asks of us that we cannot do by His grace. He saved us by His grace. He equips us by His grace to do what He has called us to do. Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So Christian, there's no point in your life when you can just look at God's commands and just say, no, won't do it. There's the line. Won't cross it. No Christian can say, I can't do what God is calling me to do. And when you run up against something in God's Word that your flesh does not want to do, what should you do? Wait until you do want to do it? No, you do it. You turn to Galatians 2.20, you turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, you take hold of Christ, your risen Lord, you trust that God's Word is for your good and you obey. Not because you'll be accepted when you do, but because you're already accepted. God has connected your joy to His glory. And it doesn't seem like it at the time, but that's because we live by faith and not by sight. We live by what God has said, not by how we feel. We keep God's Word not to earn His favor. Cornerstone, we keep God's Word because we already have God's favor. Verse 21 tells us the opposite makes the cross useless. Verse 21 says that if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we try and earn God's favor by any means other than God's grace alone, through Jesus alone, it strips the cross of its meaning. But we still live in the flesh. And this flesh, this life, is lived by faith. Not by work. Which means the pressure's off. Let go of trying to curry God's favor by doing the right things. You've been united to Christ. Every bit of God's favor is already yours. And because God has declared you right before Him, live for Him. Go to war against anything in your life that exalts yourself and give everything you have to making much of Jesus. As Jesus said to one person after He healed them, see, you are well. Go and sin no more. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? All those who turn to Jesus Christ by faith. In sin you died. 
In Christ you were raised. Therefore, live for Christ by faith. Amen.